your job. And you are about to lose your job. Get this dance. You are about to lose your job because you are detaining me for nothing. You are about to lose your job. You've tuned into Race Capital with me, Chelsea Higgs Wise, where we interrogate racial narratives and the fallen capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. All right, y'all. Well, it's another episode where we are inviting all of our hosts on to chat about what's going on in Richmond, get you all updated, and give our commentary on what we see happening in the local and national narratives. So welcome to my co-hosts, Naomi and Kalia. Hey, y'all. Hey. Um, the national narratives around Richmond, of course, are all about these Confederate monuments. And as of right now, we only have one monument left on Monument Avenue. And everybody is asking what's going on with the Robert E. Lee statue. So we know that there have been two different lawsuits and injunctions to stop the Robert E. Lee monument from coming down. And just to update folks, because I don't think that this piece of information has been highlighted enough is that as of July 1st, the latest judge to oversee this case of the monument removal, that now makes seven judges that had to recuse themselves from their case. Now, judges can recuse themselves from a case for a number of different reasons, but we know this latest judge, according to BizSense, his home is within the boundaries of Monument Avenue Historic District, which has National Historic Landmark designation from the U.S. Department of the Interior. Even though right now the lawsuits aren't necessarily talking about property tax, it's very likely that the judge could end up having to oversee this conversation. And the plaintiffs enjoy certain tax benefits as a consequence of their ownership of real estate within this district, which will be adversely affected by any actions that the defendants to remove, damage, or alter the lease statue. And that's what the case is all about. And if the judge is living close to Monument Avenue or has that same interest, then it's obviously a conflict of interest. I would love to hear from you, Kalia and Naomi, like, what are your reactions to that? I know when I read that there have already been now seven judges that have such a conflict with Confederate monuments, they, they have now had to recuse themselves. That just blew my mind. I don't think it's very surprising to hear that there are so many judges who have a conflict of interest here in Richmond, especially given that we know even into the early 2000s, late uh, 20th century, we had judges in Virginia and in the Deep South who weren't even operating with law licenses. They were operating based on common, common law and um, just racist ideologies percolating in their societies. And so I think, you know, what else are we going to expect when we are living literally in the birthplace of all these injustices? We have, when we say that we're trying to tear down all the monuments to white supremacy, this is what we're talking about, reshaping the criminal justice system, because we have these monuments, these judges in white wig, who are giving us the same racist obstacles that our ancestors had to face through the law. And it brings me to the conversation of prosecutors and their relationships to cops, and therefore the court system in general. And how we have to understand that when folks are like, well, who is still around really trying to maintain this Confederate narrative? Well, it could be many of our judges. Like that's where a lot of the power sits. And if you think you're disconnected to power, well, many of us are. 
but we still have many people with the Confederate Southern mindset that's harmful to black folks that are running our court system right now. Um, when we have the demand to tear down all uh, symbols and structures to white supremacy, that also includes Confederate judges, such as this judge, um, who has been known to call protesters rioters um, and talk about law and order using some of the same uh, logic and rhetoric that Donald Trump uses. Uh, so we really have to think about who these people are, as Naomi said, these white wigs that are um, in control of people's futures. This is a case about a Confederate statue, but there are judges in the criminal justice system or so-called criminal justice system that determine the realities of our friends and family every day. Uh, and they hold these Confederate ideologies. And so this is just one peek into what that looks like in the courtrooms. I also think folks like to be forgiving of judges and think that, you know, they are the beacon of hope in the justice system. But we really have to go back to who is keeping 97% of people incarcerated, you know, without a trial? Who is the person who's not granting bonds? Who are the people who are keeping our folks locked in cages? That's not just the prosecutors. That's not just the cops. Ultimately, that comes down to the judges. And so the judges are meant to uphold the laws. And when the laws are racist, then the judges are racist. And we talk about cops and Klan go hand in hand, but the full story is that many of the KKK members would very intentionally go under the badge, but they'd also go under the robe. And that's another part of history that we have to know where did all those members go? It wasn't just the police force, y'all. The judge cited incidents at the John Marshall Courts building, as well as looting and vandalism that took place weeks earlier. Um, as you know, him talking about the, the rioters and the law and order. Uh, so this particular judge has talked about um, the activism and demonstrations that have happened around housing and eviction and demonized them. Um, so I just feel like that's really important context to understand that these judges are keeping up with current events and they're not working in a silo in the courthouse. Um, and so while we're, we're learning about uh, evictions and seeing the realities of that, they are also watching it and informing their own opinions about what the work looks like on the ground and yeah, really creating a narrative that they're going forward with. So just another interesting fact about this judge is that, you know, yeah, he's demonizing our housing protesters as well. And I want to harp on the fact or the issue, but it's like, you know, we're calling the Lee Monument the final boss, but truly the John Marshall Courthouse that's the final boss because that's where all the violence in the city is happening against black and brown and indigenous folks. That's the people who, when you talk to Richmond Community Bail Fund, you wanna know who they'll tell you is running in and out of that court? Mostly black people, black people. And so the judge wants to talk about looting and, and theft. And it's like, when you are prosecuting poverty, what do you expect that you're going to get? People are in desperate conditions. It's not looting. The people who are looting, you know, are the corporations and the landlords. And the, you, when you're putting folks out on the street and stealing their property and stealing their tents. So it's just, when, we, when we're talking about taking down all monuments to white supremacy, I don't think that we'll really be there until we take on the violence that is happening in that courtroom. And what a stronger parallel than taking down the Jeb Stewart monument while they were literally taking down housing advocates at the John Marshall Hotel with security and police and deputy sheriffs in a violent, aggressive, completely unacceptable way at the exact same time. And that's just a metaphor of what's happening in Richmond. As they take down the symbolism, they're continuing with the oppressive nature of putting us in chains. Yeah, so, so to me, there's really no surprise then when we see a white judge, or a row of white judges at this point, or uh, racist judges, they don't even all have to be white, who are holding these Confederate ideologies so true that many of them have had to recuse themselves. That's what the news is here. Um, and so that's a problem because, you know, the people have been calling the Robert E. Lee statue the final boss on Monument Avenue. The rest of them have been taken down. But the fact that this last one, the general, Robert E. Lee, and, you know, with the Marcus David Peters circle, there's a lot of symbolism here. 
to the fact that so difficult for this one to come down. And now we have this additional obstacle on top of that. It's very metaphorical when you think about it. It, it, It's Virginia. It's Richmond, Virginia in a situation, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's truly the final general that's keeping us in chains symbolically. And the court system and these judges are also the final decision maker on a lot of our freedom. Just to be clear, we're talking about Judge Bradley Cavado, who on July 1st disqualified himself from presiding over the pending consolidation of the two cases to stop the removal of the Lee statue at Marcus David Peters. Um, Since we're talking about judges and we're talking about the court system, I want to transition to a conversation that I had with Steve Fishbach over at the Virginia Poverty Law Center and just what they really want people to hear right now, what's happening in the court system across Virginia, what we need to look out for what's coming, and how these judges are still maintaining a monument to white supremacy by destroying our monuments to shelter. Up next, Steve Fishbach. Hi, I'm Steve Fishbach. I am the litigation director at the Virginia Poverty Law Center. We filed um, a bunch of petitions in May trying to keep the courts closed, which sort of worked but really didn't. Um, And that was in because of COVID? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was to try to have courts not hear evictions. It was the first time the eviction moratorium disappeared. So we Mm -hmm. filed those petitions and then shortly after that the governor got the Supreme Court to extend it. Um, And now it's off again. So we're trying to get a lot of information out to people Mm -hmm. about um, what tenants' rights are Mm -hmm. and a little bit about the eviction process. We meaning Virginia Poverty Law Center, runs an eviction legal helpline, um, which is we envision as like the first line of entry for people right. into the legal aid world. Um, through the helpline, people can get some immediate telephone advice and um, referrals to legal aid attorneys where that's appropriate. What are a couple of questions that people would have that they would reach out to the helpline for? I'm getting evicted. What do I do? <laughs> um, I missed my rent payment, um, or I can't pay my rent. What should I do? Okay. Um, we got a bunch of my landlord is has changed the locks on my apartment, or turned off the water or electricity. Right. What do I do? Right. Um, right. I think those are probably the three most common questions. Mm-hmm. We've gotten, we also got a bunch of people who were staying in hotels and motels saying they told me I have to leave now. What do I do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, what's the number to the phone line, to the helpline? 1 866 No Evict, N O E V I C T. Now, is that just for Richmond or what is that? Statewide. Number? Statewide, Virginia, great. So, Steve, does Richmond have a history with evictions in Richmond? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, evic- Richmond is one of the nation's eviction hotspots. Um, the last statistic I have is from 2016, where, because that comes from the um, eviction lab at Princeton University, there they determined that Richmond's eviction rate was like 11 point something percent, making it the second highest city of the city of this size the highest second highest eviction rate in the in the nation you know the state is opening up but it seems like people are still filing for unemployment and, and housing is yeah made. last week there were probably in richmond about 280 cases mm-hmm. that eviction cases that were were scheduled for hearing um, as of last Monday, going eight weeks forward from last Monday, there were 11,000 cases across the across Virginia uh, eviction cases scheduled to be heard. Wow. So um, what we've learned is that compared to other years, the number of eviction filings has been lower 
and that's in part because the courts were closed, they weren't taking filings, some even weren't taking eviction cases even as the courts were opening, it took a little while, um, but there are many fewer than one would normally expect based on historic data, but there are reasons to believe that there's, you know, you know many more than the 11,000 coming. I mean, mm -hmm. those 11,000 cases, many of them were filed like in February and March and even April, uh, but because of the various moratoriums and court closures, they hadn't been, they didn't get heard. So um, now at the end of July, there are two events that we're really concerned about. One is the expiration of the eviction moratorium established by the CARES Act, which covered about 25% of the rental housing stock. It includes public housing, Section 8, tax credit properties. These are where people who have lower incomes live mm -hmm. um, in, in general. Um, and that will expire on July 25th. Okay. After July 25th, on July 26th, landlords can start sending 30-day notices, eviction notices. Yeah. So come the end of August, there could be a flood of evictions just based on the expiration of the CARES Act. Right. The other thing that's happening on July 25th is the extra $600 a week that people on unemployment were receiving stops. Right. So those two factors are ingredients for a perfect storm of a tsunami of evictions. Wow. Wow. So and the legal aid system will not be able to handle them all. Wow. I mean, there are, um, I forget what the exact number of legal aid attorneys is. I, I think across the state we're about 200. Um, not all doing housing work, but... This is far beyond uh, our system's capacity to address. So we're trying to get um, pro bono volunteer attorneys to handle some of these cases when they start, you know, you know, hitting us in mass. Virginia's eviction protections for tenants compared to other places nationally are not that great. There's this. Um, eviction policy scorecard I forget what Virginia's grade was I forget if it was a D or a C minus or a D plus it was it was definitely in the lower ranks right um, and that too you know also is another ingredient for the storm of you know mass homelessness because um, you know tenant protections in this state are not that great and the eviction process here happens fairly quickly um, so um, come the end of the middle to end of September we could be in a real jam right. um, which is why it's really important that the governor re you know go back to the Virginia Supreme Court and, and ask for an eviction moratorium, or declare one himself if the court won't do it, mm -hmm. um, because that's that is the short-term answer for preventing mass homelessness. But the other ingredient that's missing is, you know, adequately funded rent relief programs. Um, the state of Virginia has committed fifty million dollars in care in coronavirus relief funds to assist renters which is great, but that money is going to disappear pretty quickly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the state's Housing and Community Development Department have made a request for $200 million, and the um, National Low-Income Housing Coalition estimated that for Virginia, the amount of money that was would be needed is $2.3 billion. Wow. So, so that, that $50 million doesn't do anything. It's going to Well, it does. It'll help I mean, a, a small number of people. Right. I mean, we shouldn't disregard that it's there. It's, right. it's going to help some people. Right. But the scale of the problem is such that a much larger financial commitment is necessary. Mm -hmm. um, in May, the 
House in, in, in Congress, the House of Representatives passed a bill called the HEROES Act, which contained $100 billion nationally for um, rent relief. So that's like the kind of scale that we need, but of course the Republican Senate is just sitting on it. Mm. Um, so that type of bill could actually really impact us. Yes, in a positive way. I mean, that would provide, you know, I mean, just divide up 50 states yeah. equally, you yeah. see that for, we're, that that's in the ballpark. Now, of course, larger states are going to need more than, than $2 billion, and smaller states may not need quite as large uh, uh, an amount. But yes, right. that's what is really needed. So, Steve... What is your privilege and how do you use it to fight the myth of white supremacy? I've always, I mean, I've been doing this work for over 30 years. Um, I've only been in Virginia two years. Before that, I was in Rhode Island for over 30. And throughout my career, I've used my legal skills to advance racial justice, largely in housing, but not just housing. I also did a lot of work on environmental justice. I mean, the other thing is, is also trying to build up institutions that promote, you know, that, that can carry on the fight for racial justice. So in Rhode Island, I helped get an environmental justice organization launched and off the ground. Um, years after filing a lawsuit to, to stop the construction of two public schools on top of the city of Providence's former garbage dump. Wow. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the capacity building piece is also another way of how I use my privilege because, again, having a legal skill set, you know, I can do what we what lawyers call transactional work, which is basically work to, to set up, um, you know, legal entities. And in this case, it would be mostly nonprofit groups, you know, advancing, you know, a racial justice agenda. Yeah. Would you call the courts a monument to white supremacy? Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, there was, was it a system created by white people to maintain the power of white people. Yes. So oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So how, I mean, in as many words as you'd like to share, how would you see your work right now in litigating a, an institution white supremacy as we publicly dis- discuss monuments to white supremacy in the streets and with the revolution right now? Well, it's, it's always been very difficult. I mean, the courts are very hostile to racial justice litigation. Um, a, a really good example of that is how the courts have eviscerated one of the civil rights era's most important pieces of legislation, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits recipients of federal funds from discriminating on the basis of race, color, and national origin. Right. Um, in um, just a little bit of history, legal history, so um, at, you know that there are two parts of that law. One is the the, the law itself that creates the the ban against discrimination, and the second part authorized uh, every federal agency to promulgate regulations to enforce Title VI. So every single federal agency that did so issued regulations that prohibited not only um, intentional racial discrimination, but also policies and practices that have the effect Mm. of discriminating on the basis of race, color, and national origin. And in 2000, in a case called Alexander versus Sandoval, the Supreme Court held that there was no private right of action to enforce Title VI's regulations, So, um, which meant that in court, the only way to bring a Title VI case is to allege and, and prove intentional racial discrimination. That's and, impossible. <laughs> well, it, it is impossible, not because it doesn't exist and you can't show that you can, but the, but the legal standard for proving intentional discrimination established by cases including Washington versus Davis and um, the Village of Arlington Heights cases establishes this like five-factor 
factor case, which while the jurisprudence says you don't need a smoking gun, in practice, not only do you need a smoking gun, but you need, you know, the dead bodies <laughs> shot by the smoking gun. Right, right. Um, and and, a, a, cell and phone a pile of them, not just one or two. Right. So, you know, you know, the courts, I mean, that's a really good example of how the courts, you know, as a, as a, uh, as an essential ingredient to the, to, to the white supremacy structure of our country have, you know, worked to maintain that. I mean, that happened also when, you know, you know, with the slaughterhouse cases after the Civil War, when a lot of the, you know, the laws that, um, that were enacted to, you know, liberate black people were severely curtailed. Right. So there's historical precedent for this. This is not something new to our era. It's something that's happened over and over again, unfortunately. Because they're tools of white supremacy that they're just reenacting and continuing to use on us. And, and us not being taught at this in our history, we're unable to recognize them a lot of times unless we have the privilege of a legal degree or some type of access to this education that we don't normally have as a quote-unquote regular person. Yeah, for real. And it just makes us really vulnerable to falling for this, to not being under, to not understanding how we fight, right? You mentioned like a short-term plan, you mentioned some long-term plans, but these are all really difficult strategies to sit down and do as a community all while we're trying to survive and have shelter. Yep. And I mean, if you look at like the racial composition of the legal profession, it does not reflect the diversity of our nation either. I mean, it costs a lot of money to go to law school and that is a serious barrier to entry for people of color um, into the profession. And, um, and people who, you know, who, people of color who do go through the system often come out with huge debts. I mean, that's not limited to, to black and brown um, law students, but since they have fewer economic resources to begin with, the, the debt is more crushing. Right. Um, and the need to get rid of it is more uh, imperative. So a lot of um, law students of color don't go into this line of work mm. because they'd go bankrupt. Yeah. I mean, fortunately, my legal education was paid for and I didn't have debt, although that relates more to my my unique family history as having uh, two parents who uh, came to this country with their parents from Nazi Germany mm. and my grandparents receiving reparation payments. So... Well, look at that! <laughs> but yes, look at that! And But... At, and, and but I, I wanted to yeah. mention that not just to toot my own horn, but to talk about the need for reparations here. Right. So um, and and what it did. I mean, what it did for me. Right. And I felt the need to give back. Yeah. Um, yeah. And for me, you know, it became very obvious at a young age that the best way to give back is to fight racism in this country. Black people are the victims the primary victims of, you know, that abhorrent human behavior. Yeah, yeah, black people, yeah, we, we really are. And, well, S Steve, we're going to have to invite you back to the show. This was great. Thank you so much. Um, how can people continue to follow the work over at Virginia Poverty Law Center? Um, you can go to our website, which is www.vplc.org. That's okay. what I would recommend people go. Great. Thank you so much, Steve Fishbach, for being here. And um, we will be on the lookout for what's happening in late August and September and looking back at VPLC to how we can support Richmond. Thanks. Thanks. listening to Race Capital with me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise, on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. Now back to the commentary and catch up right here from the Capital of the Confederacy with my co-hosts, 
Kalia Harris, and Naomi Isaac. I feel like when we talk about tearing down systems and structures of white supremacy, that also includes uh, our education system, right? So um, when you talk to um, Black liberation activists, some of them in the city, they would say that public education, uh, the way that the system is set up now, really socializes people into white supremacy. And so one of the ways that we see it in a literal structure uh, form is through the policing in schools. Um, and so you, you, we ha uh, so we hear this call for cops out of schools here, and it's ringing throughout the nation. Uh, Los Angeles, the county decided to divest uh, and break all their contracts with police. We've also seen that in a lot of different cities throughout the nation. So this is the time for us in Richmond to really start having this conversation about uh, SROs, um, SSOs, and all of these different resource officers and police that are inside of our schools. And so the school board is having um, conversations about that now. There are huge public hearings coming up very soon. The first one being on July 27th. The second one is going to be on Monday, August 24th. We still don't know if they're how they're going to take public comments for this for this meeting, uh, but stay tuned and follow up with us, and we will keep you updated uh, with more cops out of schools content down the line. But I think that this this conversation is really important right now, right? Cops out of schools. When we see metal detectors, when we hear officers saying wait till you're 18, that ass is mine. A lot of the times when we have this discussion about cops out of school, it gets very centered just on the SROs. And yes, they need to go. They need to be like completely out of the budget. But then we still need to talk about the ways that policing as a function exists in our educational opportunities. We see the university and just uh, these buildings for education. Um, public schools are meant to be this place where White kids learn how to perform whiteness and non-white kids learn how to perform second class citizenship. And that teaches them, you know, that, you know, you're not smart enough. You don't know how to speak proper, quote unquote, English well enough. You're too violent. You're this, your parents aren't good enough. X, Y, Z, it just puts them and reinforces all these stereotypes and feelings of, uh, I don't know, feelings of inadequacy in, in young youth. And then it punishes them when they retaliate against that in a way that they maybe aren't emotionally ready to deal with all these pressures and um, just violence that they're facing seriously in the classroom. And I don't know, I just think when we're talking about taking cops out of school, we need to address the fact that some teachers right now and some of the school administration are operating as cops. And that still poses a threat to black and brown children all across the nation, and especially here in Richmond. And when I have this conversation with parents, uh, just in passing in general, a lot of the times the question is, well, if you're taking cops out of schools, how are we going to deal with the bad students? And I think that's when we have to really think about, you know, how do we deal with discipline? What does that look like? Um, and how are we conditioning folks into learning, you know, what's right and wrong? Um, and so I think we really have to talk about well-equipped counselors trauma-informed folks that are in these schools. Um, and so this conversation cannot be had outside of conversations about budget uh, for schools. It can't be had without talking about the fact that we don't have enough nurses, that we don't have enough counselors to staff our schools currently. And so I just don't want it to be an open-ended question of, okay, well, y'all are saying get cops out of schools, but you know, what happens? It's very clear what needs to happen. We need to start caring for our children um, and not policing them. And that's the same thing that we're saying at large in the community is we need to start caring for our community instead of policing them. It's not about dealing with bad kids because kids aren't bad, they're hungry, they're unhoused, you know, they don't have clean water. And so when you want to say, well, what are we going to do with bad kids? Give them free lunch. Make sure that they aren't getting evicted. You know, these are the simple steps we can be taking if we really are compassionate and we really care about the well-being of Black students. And to remind everyone in Richmond, on March 29th, 2019, a cop, we don't know which cop because LeVar Stoney has refused to release the cop's name, 
was recorded and this incident heard here. And the students filmed this. The students had to get out their phone and realize just because now that's how black kids, black people, just black body people understand our defense against cops is take out my cell phone and record everything they do. These kids had no idea what the cops would say, right? When they pulled out their phone. But this is now how our kids know that they are seen by these people supposedly keeping us safe. And that's not okay. That's not how we should be spending our tax dollars. The fact that we now know from a video that was released just a couple days ago that LeVar Stoney had a meeting with the Richmond Police Department that was not happy with how he condemned the officer that rolled through the protesters and ended up hitting the protester on the bike. Here's a clip from that meeting that was secretly recorded and you can hear that Karen, the cop, had a lot to say. After hearing that and hearing his tape, how are we supposed to trust him with not just our kids in schools, but just our entire community? I don't trust LeVar Stoney as far as I can throw him, which is not very far. Uh, it's clear that he is responsible, right? Officer Karen, whoever she was, was speaking, you know, what she understood to be true, which is that they put their lives on the line for the chief of police and his boss, Mayor LeVar Stoney. And so, in turn, Mayor LeVar Stoney is responsible for the actions of the police. So when they're tear gassing us, hailing down with rubber bullets, policing our children, all of that, he is culpable. And that they felt comfortable enough to say that to him in that intimate space really tells us the truth. Um, and the last thing I'll say about this is that he made it very clear that he uses investigations as a way to buy time with the community. So there is no intention here uh, to actually seek justice or get answers about why the police officer hit someone with their car or, you know, any of these instances of police brutality that have happened. Rather, it's very clear that he uses investigations to satiate us um, so that we stop asking questions. And so we really do need to start questioning the legitimacy of any of these investigations into the police. I'm still interested at the overall origin of the video because I think there are two people at fault here. Because, you know, the, the officer, Karen, she's talking about how she's taking orders from LeVar Stoney. But LeVar Stoney's not telling them to laugh at protesters, not telling them, them to roll over people with their cars um, and do all these just extra bru brutal methods of get, regaining control. You know, that's obviously not the direct order that they're receiving. But then on the other hand, it's like, okay, if they're receiving orders from LeVar Stoney, let's humor them. Who is he receiving orders from? And that's the elite class. That's when we need to start looking into donors 
and who's really running this city because obviously it's not LeVar. That's really interesting that you say that because we were looking into the history of the Richmond Police Department and we know that the first pensions were given to police department through the business class. It was a fund right here in Richmond that the business class put together in order to fund police pensions in order to take care of them. So you're, what you're noticing right now, Naomi, is exactly right. And it's historic. It's what the police force and protecting them is rooted in is who are they actually protecting. And listening to LeVar, he didn't, he, he seemed scared. It reminded me of when he tried to announce Chief Blackwell and the other police officers basically organized around him and didn't allow him in the room and had a private meeting with him without the press. It's, again, who was running our mayor? And, and in that meeting, we could tell he was off balance. He wasn't in charge. It's surprising to me that they're even saying that he's the boss because they're obviously running him, which worries us to death that they want to continue and thought, thoughtlessly use their cars, their bodies, their weapons that we fund to continue to put violence on, our, on us and our families and our entire communities. This is extremely horrifying, and we should all be enraged over this. Not to mention, just a couple episodes ago, we talked to uh, some, one of the folks that was hit by this car, and LeVar said, as we just heard, that he saw nothing wrong in that video. He didn't see them do anything wrong. There was no criminal behavior. So that's our mayor saying that he saw a video of a police officer SUV running over a protester and saw nothing wrong with it. And that in fact, we should check out what happened before the video because somehow that would make it okay. And that's, that's the same person that we're supposed to trust to uh, change things and take advice from a so-called uh, cop task force. So this is really concerning to me uh, someone who goes out into the streets, who has seen people get tear gassed and shot at, to know that the person who is in charge of our city doesn't see a problem with the violent behavior, even as the city and the police department are being sued. I feel like this puts LeVar in a really awkward situation because I don't really know how anyone can have confidence in him. Either he's running the shots or he's being bullied. And I don't know which, whether I need to report the video for cyberbullying on Twitter or if I need to be outside City Hall, like, protesting this man. So right now, it's just like there's a complete lack of trust and a complete lack of legitimacy in LeVar's uh, mayor, uh, in LeVar's position right now. Um, we, I don't see him as a leader. I don't know where he's leading us other than into pepper spray or, you know, down a long road that's going to be more dependent on the Richmond Police Department. We heard the chief of police say recently that he would like to see an increase in the police budget. Mind you, the only reason we're out here is because we are protesting the absurd amount of money that is being poured into the police department to continue to, to enact harm against black and brown communities. So it's like either y'all aren't getting, they aren't getting the message or they're completely content with just ignoring us because they know that the Richmond Police Department has to run the show and there's not going to be a Richmond without that kind of reality. And the officers believe that they're doing this for the city. That is what Officer Karen said, that we are doing this for the city. Um, and we also heard at the last city council meeting that they're referring to themselves as troops. You know, the chief, he called, he called the police force troops. Ellen Robertson called the police force troops. So these are the folks that are asking for additional money. Let's fund our troops, our Richmond troops. That's what, that's what Gerald Smith is asking. And we've made it very clear, as Naomi said, that we would like the police department to be defunded. And that needs to be heard. And I don't trust a task force made by the mayor with the Commonwealth attorney, the leading top cop, in Richmond and other police officers, I believe there's six of them on this task force. I don't trust those folks 
to say, you know, let's defund the police. I have trust in some of the folks on the, on the task force that perhaps, you know, they will raise their voices in this space. I have hope and trust, but not the, the police officers. They're not going to talk themselves out of a job. They're not going to talk themselves out of funding. Not when their top cop is saying, let's get more money. So, Kalia, you mentioned the troops. So we have to think, who are the troops fighting? And the troops are fighting us. They're fighting everybody that is holding up a sign for BLM, everyone that's putting a BLM flag up at their house. We are funding the troops to fight the BLM movement. Literally, our tax dollars are going to protect what exactly? The property? The space of the police department? What exactly is the $600,000 allotted for that Ralph Northam gave to the state for the National Guard? And then you also talk about how they believe that they're really doing this for the city. And as we talk about training and people want to do that, we have to go back to that point, Kalia, because if they truly, in their mind, are conditioned that they are doing this for a certain cause because they've been militarized in that way, no sort of training is going to undo that properly to keep us safe right now. And so any funding of care or what we want to see changed has to go to the professionals that signed up to do that care work. And none of that is police. And I really, I have so many feelings about RTD making the headline of the cover story of their Tuesday paper that they need to fund the change they want to see. I know that you can read into the article more, but that type of headline gives people a language. And that's what they're trying to start. They're trying to say, well, maybe we should fund the change. And I want everyone to hear that, to know that that is a lie. It's manipulation. And there will be no change in the police department that we are ever asking for, which is why we've been very stern in our stance of defund the police. And Kalia, you brought up the task force. So let's talk about the task force a little bit. Um, The Commonwealth attorney is on there, as well as two other elected officials, Ellen Robertson, who you also mentioned the troops out here. Mike Jones, who has been flip-floppy on all sides, but seems to be trying to do the right thing. But now there's also the Commonwealth attorney who actually has the power to meet a demand, but instead she's been put on a reimagining board. You know, these, the, the council people are actually part-time officials, which means our tax dollars, when they work in a city capacity, only go, supposed to go to a certain amount of hours. And I don't want my tax dollars going to them reimagining anything. I want them to use their authority that we elected them to do to actually act. And I hate the the term reimagining because it's like reform to me, especially when you have six cops in a room and I'm counting the Commonwealth attorney as a cop. I also worry about, again, the business class that that we are protecting. So many people on this board are also identified as VCU professors. So VCU has such a stake and a voice in this board, which is, again, just a certain class of people. And for a lot of folks that do or do not know, in order to be on these types of boards and appointed, you have to either live, work, or worship in the city. So many of these people do not even live in the city. They just work in the city. And that's why the mayor's task force is so offensive because just a couple weeks ago, the Richmond Transparency Accountability Project went to city council and said that we want a people's task force. And on the people's task force, we want all civilians, no cops, no elected officials, all civilians. You know, RTAP is an organization that also advocated for meetings to not be in the police training center off of Graham Street because many of the meeting spaces that the city wants to have, they want to offer you the space of the police training center. And the room when you walk in is just filled with all of the former Richmond police chiefs, all of these white men and their huge portraits. And we would always say, we don't want to be in this building. It's not, that doesn't feel safe to us. I want to just bring that point back up to organizing in a room for our future with in cops just doesn't make sense. So the people's task force that the ordinance was created with Stephanie Lynch 
is something that RTAP wants and those advocates want. And within that task force, the people's task force, again, that was proposed weeks ago, we wanted all civilians, but we also, not just civilians, but we wanted people that live in Richmond, in the communities that are over-policed the most, not just in a gentrified Churchill area, but in the areas that are highly policed. There are major differences in the task force from the people's task force and this mayor's task force right now. So for everyone that's confused, I wanna be really clear that there is an ordinance right now in city council that was proposed by Councilwoman Lynch that is going through the operations committee right now that is headed by Andreas Addison. Councilman Addison is taking public comment on this right now and many of the advocates support this. The People's Task Force came together because we believe that three to six months at least engagement is important for this task force to be able to inform what the CRB would look like. This public engagement process would inform our CRB. And that's important to all the advocates that we not just make a piece of legislation for our oversight without this engagement. So we believe in public engagement, but, but we believe that it should be funded as well as it should reach every person. And we know that right now in COVID and the fact that Richmond City has actual no effective way to engage the public, which we've seen from past projects like the Navy Hill project, that we need, we need that time and oversight. And we need to do that without cops in the room to inform our civilian oversight moving forward. Um, what I'm hearing from the way that you just explained that is that um, this ordinance will really help to shape the public input part of developing a civilian review board. Um, and so it's developing and uh, intaking public comment to start to shape that board and what that will look like. That then will have more public comment to start to look at um, the other pieces. And one last piece that everyone just should keep an eye on, that special session for the General Assembly is coming up and the state legislation that would empower localities is, is, will probably be heard and a main piece of legislation out of this. So continue to follow and listen for what's happening in special session as far as civilian oversight. Well, let's chat a little bit about the revivals that's been happening lately and maybe what Richmond can expect. Yeah, so if anyone knows anything about uh, Southern Baptist tradition, you know that around this time in the summer, uh, revivals are usually happening. Um, so these are when there's tents outside, it's hot, there's choirs, preachers keep going uh, for you know days on end. And there's always hot dogs. Um, and so we, we took this spirit of revival and have had a few reclamation revival events uh, starting this past Sunday where we marched from MLK Middle School um, down and across the bridge back to the reclamation square, uh, the infamous and famous reclamation square, uh, where we had speakers, um, folks just centering Black joy. We had a, a bit of a teaching and group dialogue happening. It was lit, honestly. Um, so much so that we came back for a second day and did it again. Um, so yeah, the, the spirit of revival has been strong in Richmond over the last week. And we're seeing nothing but escalation. And kind of just the spirit of reviving this movement that started out very radical and the way that we were defending the justice that Black lives are owed and kind of was co-opted by folks like LeVar Stoney um, and, you know, all his cronies. And they kind of squashed down the movement and made it, diluted it to be what fit their interests. So we were kind of taking back the narrative and recentering the dialogue to really be about how we get our communities free. And I know there were so many moments I know one moment that we've talked about from the second night was the march back to the MLK parking lot where we start off. And it is really beautiful marching across the MLK bridge, y'all. It, it's pretty dope. 
But when we came and turned that corner, right there is Mosby Court. And there were many families and people out there when we left and waving at us. But when we came back, the way that people were coming out of their homes with their phones up and waving at us and telling us thank you and with their fist up and with their middle finger up. And you articulated this really well, Kalia, on top of your car (laughs) at the final words at the march on Monday night. But it's why we cannot have every march start at the circle and we can't have every march start at monroe park and because we are now building up a trust with people in mosby court and just like that i know we had one family member that came up and said i have six kids and since COVID, it's been terrible so she was also telling me that she can't march with six kids but she was like how can you teach us how can you tell us what's going on we don't know and, and so it's, it's these moments that remind us why we have to be out of our house and in the streets. And so people can see us and hear us and trust us and see that we're still out here. I think that's definitely an obligation for especially Black middle-class folks to adopt because sometimes we try to act like all of our struggle is the same, but we got to keep it real and know that there are people struggling way worse than we are. And they're tired too from trying not to get evicted and trying to take care of their kids. And they can't, don't have the energy to join us in the streets. So we got to keep this up because we got to get them free too. And, we, we're, and, and that's just like, uh, I don't know, that's, that's what this is all about. Yeah, and a huge part of these actions has been um, political education, passing out the demands talking to folks um, about them. So the first march that we did in that community, we actually had folks flyering um, folks that were out on their, or people that were out on their porch. And so this is, this is the work. When we're talking about abolition, it also includes talking to us, right? And explaining not just to the white people that come to Monroe Park to listen to us and you know, consume what we're doing, but it's about talking to our Black folks about why is it that we believe that abolition is the way and how does it get us free? Um, And so that's why a diversity of tactics is so incredibly important. Why a diversity of locations and just the ways that we do things. Uh, So on Monday night, we went to Reclamation Square and had amazing speakers. Art Burton, uh, King Salim came out, just amazing folks. And then we went to Broad Street and held that intersection for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And it was just incredibly powerful. So I just wanted to to paint that picture of what these nights are looking like and what revival feels like and what it it actually is. Um, And tonight, y'all, Wednesday night, 7 p.m., because we will be the intersection of North Belvedere and West Clay Street to begin another action, to talk further about what reclamation is, what revolution is, and how we can get closer to abolition. But the reclamation is also about recentering the demand, all of which have not been met. So when we went into planning this, we were like, hey y'all, what demands have been met? Oh wait, none of them. Um, And so you have seen the demands plastered on uh, the halls of the former city hall. Um, we've made it very clear that there are demands and they haven't been met. And so that's a big part of this. So if you're coming out, please be sure uh, to know what you're marching for. There are demands, they're two plus years old, and we'd like some attention put to them. I want to talk about how this is also about reclaiming Black confidence, because I feel like whether or not we all agree on how we get to a better world, we are all in agreement that the police are not in that picture and it's like some people you know they they want to know more about abolition they think it's a little sketchy but they're like you know the cops aren't keeping us safe and that's what the main connect is between all these intersecting communities is that everyone can see that the richmond police department is only producing more harm and i love it i love that for us because people are not buying into the smoke and mirrors that they're trying to paint and create for us Well, everything is changing day by day, so continue to follow Race Capital. Listen to us every Wednesday at 10 a.m. right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio.
I'd like to thank Kalia and Naomi for joining me today. It's important that you not just listen. It's important that you donate, but it's important that you show up. And if you don't show up, tell someone else to show up and take a sign for you. And that's what we have to continue. So we hope you continue to support us, support the collective people, and support defunding the Richmond Police Department. We'll catch you next week right here on Race Capital.